My name's William Marler. I'm 23 years old, I'm an animator, I do stand-up comedy, and I have cystic fibrosis. In this podcast, I'll be helping share real stories from real people affected by CF. Hi, I'm Rue. Hi, my name is Pearl. Hi, my name is Charles Michael Duke. I have cystic fibrosis. And I'm coming to you straight from the lungs. Straight from the lungs. Straight from the lungs. The cystic fibrosis journey starts when you receive the diagnosis. The news is usually given to parents of babies or young children, and while it may seem like the end of something beautiful, in fact, it's only the beginning. I was born in 1995, and to begin with at least, everything was normal. Well, not entirely. Mum was totally convinced that you were going to be a twin. And when they had a second, another scan, and it was, yeah. I was convinced you were going to be a girl because the pregnancy was very different to Alexander. Yeah. It wasn't a very easy birth, but that's nothing to do with it. Yeah, it was a long birth, and I can remember going out to the delivery room. I saw Carol, and I just burst into tears. Yeah. Yeah, no, you, and you were fine at birth, and yeah, stayed in a few days and breastfed and came home. Yeah. and Yeah. A few days later, Everything changed after a blood test showed that I potentially had cystic fibrosis. So a further test was done. You had the sweat test done, which meant bundling you up in loads of clothes in a warm room, like a little snowman you did in that car seat, making you sweat. And then they took some uh, measured it. Then we went and saw the doctor in the clinic, and she said she would ring us that evening if it was with the result, mm. and there wasn't a phone call. So I presumed everything was fine. So you went to work the next day, and then the next morning she rang, and she told me that she tried to ring me the evening before, and I don't know why we hadn't got through to each other, but anyway. And she said it had come back positive, and I was very, you got it wrong, you sure? Almost didn't believe, I think. Mm-hmm. I then rang mum, arranged to come straight away with Rosemary. Mm-hmm. I think at that point, I was more angry, I think. And we're pretty decent people, and yet it's not fair that our child should have this illness, but life's not fair, is it? <laughs> I think you go through a bit of a grieving process as well. Mm. You know, get through your pregnancy, don't have a premature baby, get through your birth, don't have a baby that's injured at birth, everything's fine, and then you get that diagnosis so that... We thought you were going to be this sickly child that was in the classroom, not out in the playground, and had to keep away from colds and coughs. Couldn't, and Couldn't do sport. Couldn't do any sport, couldn't do anything. Was going to be really ill child, which I mean, some people are, but thank God you weren't. As you can imagine, my CF diagnosis affected the whole family, and while it was awful news to receive, it did help put everything else in perspective. Here's Cherry, my grandmother. For many, many years I was at Samaritan, and on the one particular day, knowing that you were about to be born at any day now, there was somebody who was meant to be the one person who was looking after the two Samaritans on duty that they could phone and talk through any problems. And I had heard she had gone to the town. It was in the days before anybody could get hold of anybody on Little Telegraph. Going back some years, I was really angry about that, but... I thought, well, I've got to tell her off. It's going to be awkward because she's not the easiest person to tell off. People are a bit scared of her, but I will do so because I need to do so. I got a call also that you had been born and they had discovered that you had got CF. And it was explained to me what CF was. My whole attention was on the fact that you had got CF and not at the worries I'd got about telling this stupid woman off. So I let rivet her. 
and she really argued with me. And I thought, no, you're not getting away with it. I knew that my thought was on you, William. That's all I'm minded about. And this woman who most people were scared of wasn't scaring me at all. And so that was really, in a funny sort of way, helpful that I had other things to think about. But I did hear later that she and her best friend drank a bottle of wine one night, maybe two bottles, I don't know, to um, get over the fact that I had told her off. And that's amused me so much since then that they couldn't cope with the fact that I had told her off and they needed some wine to help them recover. I later learned that it was through me as well. I had carried the gene, which was awful feeling, but could do nothing about. It wasn't my fault. It had just come to me like any other gene comes. So, all in all, you cope with it so wonderfully well, and I'm so proud of you and all you do. I love you dearly, but that day was one when it mattered that you had CF, and not that this woman was somebody who people were scared of. Good for you. <laughs> for helping me that day. Thank you. <laughs> I was diagnosed with CF at two months old at Duke University Hospital in North Carolina. That's Morgan. He's now 28. His mum had a similar reaction to my parents, imagining what life would be like with CF. My mom, she kind of uh, drove herself crazy after I got diagnosed, because I got diagnosed in 1990. 1990 was kind of when a lot of the CF genes were first starting to get discovered, so it was still super new to everyone of what CF is, you know, a lot of it, how it's treated and all that. So back then, the life expectancy was awful. They told my mom at Duke that I wouldn't live to see my teenage years. So of course, that just sent her into an absolute like tailspin of panicking and pretty much just like putting me in a bubble. As a kid growing up, I was homeschooled. I never went to public school or anything like that because my mom, she was very paranoid about me getting sick, contracting germs, killing over. So she was very much that parent that was just like, put their kid in just like a little bubble and just like, here, you just, you just stay here and nothing will happen to you. I would say probably when I was around like 13, I kind of started branching out. Uh, around like 12 years old, I started playing guitar. It was 13 or 14, somewhere around there. I was approached by some people that was like, hey, do you want to join our band? Like, I got decent at playing guitar, so they just wanted me to join this really, really crappy high school band. We were terrible, but I was like, all right, this will be awesome. From there, I just kind of learned, you know, how to take it on myself and started from there learning that the world isn't that scary of a place. You know, yeah, you're going to get sick, you're going to be around germs and all that, but just going out into public doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to contract the plague. While Morgan's mum dealt with his diagnosis by being very loving and protective of him, his dad was the complete opposite. My dad, he was kind of just like, like, won't really say that he didn't want me, but he wanted a healthy kid. So he was there financially, but he was not there kind of emotionally or anything like that. So pretty much seven, they got separated, and it's always been my mom. Like, she's been my mom, my dad, teacher, nurse, everything, balled into one. If I was in the hospital, she was there. If I had to stay for three weeks, like, she, you know, she was there. Like, she was the type who didn't even want to leave to, like, go to a laundromat to wash clothes. She was just like, oh, I'll just, I'll wash clothes in the sink so I don't have to leave you. Like, it got to the point where as I got older and started to become more independent that I had to make her leave. I was just like, mom, I'm good, like. 
you can you can leave now. You don't have to sleep in this uncomfortable chair on this like horrible couch bed thing that they have in here. I was like, you can go home. She's like, no, I'll stay. And I was like, no, go. You're I'm good. Please go. Like right now, I'm in California and she's in North Carolina, so separated by the whole U.S. And she's just like every day calling me and super sad that I'm not there anymore. Earlier, I said that the first hint of a CF diagnosis my parents received was from a blood test. This blood test is known as the Guthrie, and I was very lucky to be born in an area of the UK that was trialling it. It's now widely used in many countries. Here's Nottingham Children's Hospital CF nurse Amanda Ward. The Guthrie is a heel prick, so the midwife will prick the newborn baby's heel and they have a sheet and card that's got five blood spots on and those blood spots are filled, put into an envelope and then sent to Sheffield. They are looking for a variety of newborn genetic conditions. When we're notified, it's more or less guaranteed that the baby has got cystic fibrosis. I think it all always all depends actually, you know, which day of the week we get that call from the newborn screening. If it's a Friday afternoon, you've always got that dilemma, do you ring a family at this point in time, break that news over the telephone and you cannot bring them into clinic um, and that's something that we wouldn't do. And ideally you probably wouldn't see them on the Friday because you, you're leaving with them again with that information over a weekend which is not ideal. So we'd always try and um, bring them into the hospital, firstly by having a phone conversation, but obviously naturally the parents would say why, what, what what is wrong. Our consultants break that news and they will tell them that actually something has shown up on the Guthrie test. Some families probably cannot remember having that test. They may or may not have read the leaflet that goes with that test and this will be out of the blue because um, to all intents and purposes they had a very healthy baby three weeks ago because that's probably about the average age they're going to get that phone call and really it is very difficult. There's no good way to break bad news but actually when you're sharing that information over the telephone you need to have already got a date a location and a time for when you want to see that family so they have a very limited time to actually wait to come into the hospital but the thing that we want to encourage with our new families is that we want you know cystic fibrosis to be a very small part of their life and actually you know we would say to that family this baby this child will achieve hopefully whatever you want him or her to achieve because there should be no bars to actually education further education if that is what you and your family aspire to and you know you cannot tell a diagnosis how severe this child will be and that is one of the things that most families ask and that is one of those difficult ones to actually tell but you know we can be very upfront and very honest with the new treatments uh, how proactive we are with treatment that the outlook really is quite hopeful and, and optimistic for a baby born today with cystic fibrosis. must be difficult because my parents have told me about the story of when I got diagnosed. The doctor laid it all out for them, was very blunt about it. It must have been difficult to be told that your son is going to grow up to become a stand-up comedian. <laughs> because I was diagnosed very soon after birth, I've never known a life without cystic fibrosis. Although an early diagnosis is very much the norm, some people learn about their CF later on in life, like Katie. 
I was diagnosed when I was about three and a half, almost four years old, and my family had just lost my younger sister, Colleen, and it was during the autopsy that they found that she had cystic fibrosis, so everybody in the family was tested. So I was diagnosed at a very rough time for my family, so not only did they lose like a little baby girl, they also had their oldest child that they had to learn how to care for. So it was like a really kind of rough time for my family. Yeah, I have a very good memory. So I remember that distinct transition of having to take enzymes that were broken up into my yogurt and this confusion of I'm not a normal kid anymore. I was always complaining about stomach aches and I was constantly coughing. Like I definitely had symptoms of CF that were going unrecognized. And I think like in the first couple of years, like up until like maybe I was like six or seven, like I still felt like different from my other siblings because I was like, like, oh, now I'm like the not normal one. I think that I was so little that I didn't realize anything else because, you know, we live with CF our entire lives. Like, it was more about the fact that I had to take care of it and that all these medical things were happening that I felt that there was something wrong with me. So it was like almost like an opposite effect, you know, where, oh, because I have to take care of myself now and I can't live without these things now that I lost my normality, even though I was in better health after the fact. I gave my family a lot of trouble when I was younger about doing treatments like the chest physiotherapy and they would do that by hand but I would still complain about it so much because I had lived without it for even just a couple of years. You know there was a lot of transitions going on at that time so I'm sure that wasn't easy. From that time to when I was probably like a teenager and like early college, like I, I was very resistant to a lot of it. You know, I'd still do them, but there was this almost this psychology where I felt like if I could fight off doing my treatments and I didn't do them, like that I was somehow like fighting this disease within my body by not taking care of it or that admitting it doesn't exist. It was very immature and childish, but I also went through that phase of almost denial and lack of acceptance within myself. Although Katie became resistant to her treatment routine, that all changed when her sister Therese was born and also diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. I had that recognition when we found out in the first couple weeks of her life that she actually had cystic fibrosis. I knew that my role with cystic fibrosis was going to change because I knew that I had to become more of a role model for her. And I was like, I can't really, like, I love my little sister so much and I can't really slack in my treatments and have her watch me, like, treat my body this way. So I've changed a lot of my perspectives, like, on CF, like, growing up with having her as a younger sister. Because of cross-infection risks, it's medically advised to keep people with cystic fibrosis away from each other. When you're sisters, though, yeah, good luck with that. We're very close. And obviously growing up in the same household as somebody with CF, (laughs) you can't really escape it, you know? You have to be in the same house. For the most part, we grew the same bacteria. Like, we both had pseudomonas. There was a time, though, when Therese was younger that she eradicated pseudomonas. My dad, it's interesting because he's a physician assistant in internal medicine, and he didn't want my sister and I, like, really hugging or, like, you know, like, on vacations, like, sleeping in the same bed. And Therese and I just kind of ignored it. 
it because, like, honestly, we have this bond and relationship that we're not willing to sacrifice, especially for something like CF, which it's going to be there the whole time. And I suppose that could be seen as a little irresponsible, but we're sisters. Like, that's a very strong bond. And, like, it's really hard to let a disease which causes a lot of suffering or almost like destruction in life uh, to the people around you. It's hard to let that get in the way of a sisterhood, especially when we're basically the only two people who understand each other. It's so helpful to have somebody that actually knows. Like, she, we are the closest to anybody in the family, and she will call me up, even if it's, like, something, like, in her personal life. Or, like, I am the only person that she can really, truly talk to about the CF in the family that really gets it. And not only do, do I understand that, like, I understand, like, the dynamics within the family relationship. But we don't live together any longer. I live in Brooklyn, and she lives in Buffalo, New York, which is about 400 miles away from New York City. So we do have that distance now, which makes it a little difficult. But I definitely think, like, especially things like getting sick and, like, her first hospital admission, I was there to be an emotional support for her. And, yeah, as well as having conversations about quality of life and life expectancy, like, we can have those conversations, honestly, and it's really nice to have that support in place. As Katie said, it can be quite common for people with cystic fibrosis to get fed up with their situation and resist their treatments. And that's even more true for people who once knew a life without CF, like Veronica. I was actually nine years old, so I was pretty old for how severe my CF is. I was really old. My parents always knew that there was something wrong, and they always told me that I had asthma until I actually tripped on a ball at school and hit my head on the ground really, really hard. And the nurse was like, you know, you should probably take her to a doctor just to make sure that she's okay. So my aunt, because I was living with my aunt at the time, she took me to a new pediatrician. The doctor was like, yeah, your head's fine. And my aunt asked him if they would look at my cough. He saw the clubbing on my hands and on my toes. And he's like, you know, I'm just going to send you to Children's Hospital of Orange County just so that they can get a closer look. And then within a week, they were like, yeah, she's got it. And I'm the only one in my family to have it. So it was a really, really big adjustment. And my mom, I think she went through like a really crazy depression because all she saw was terminal. It scared the life out of her. I felt incredibly alone because when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed with MRSA. So that just secluded me completely. So like even when people were at their doctor's appointments, like sitting in the waiting room together, I've heard of people making friends that way with other CFers because they have their mask on. But with my MRSA at that time in the world, it was the worst thing you could have. So I wasn't even allowed to wait in the waiting room. I had to wait in the hallway with a mask on. The internet wasn't a big thing in my life yet. So I was the only person I knew. And I think that being so alone was a big part of, I think, not understanding my body yet. For me, I adjusted great at first because I was like, okay, cool. I got a whole new schedule, got new things to do. But then once I got older, I was like, wow, this is exhausting. And once I became a teenager, I started rebelling a lot more. I refused to do my medicine. I would lie about it. And then I'd end up in the hospital all the time. Even now, it's 10, 11, 12 years later after I was diagnosed, I still have trouble trying to adjust. But it gets easier the longer that I've been doing it. 
And I didn't see a future for myself when I was a teenager. My mom would tell me about people who had passed and they were 22, 23. I was just like, well, I mean, I didn't have any future planned for myself. I think that played a big part in how self-destructive I was. I started smoking cigarettes and it's the worst plan a 15-year-old can have who has CF. I didn't even smoke for a year and it affected my lung function to this day. It was such a mess. I wish I could go back and tell my 15-year-old self that that is the worst idea that you could possibly have. But it was it was the easiest thing available to me to give myself a little bit of control at a time when I had absolutely none or felt like I had absolutely none. I was a really big learning experience for me to listen to your parents and to listen to your doctors. I'm glad that it happened, but I'm also, it's one of the cringy parts of my decisions that I've made. It can be incredibly upsetting for parents to see their children rebel against their CF, and it takes a lot of strength and determination not to give in. When Martine's daughter Lisa had had enough of her CF lifestyle, Martine and her husband decided to take drastic measures. She did go through a rough patch at about 17, where she said, oh, once I'm 18, I'm going to refuse the treatment, which was just alien to me. And I said, no, you're not, Lisa. If I've got to pin you down and do the physio myself, I will. And she said, yes, but I could have you for abuse then. I said to her, Lisa, that's not the way to go about it. And she said, well, you get fed up of doing the treatment. There's better things in life. I said, but that treatment is keeping you healthy. She dug her heels in, in the ground and would not have a treatment. And I said, Lisa, both me and your dad have worked hard to keep you as healthy as what you are. I said, it's like a kicking the teeth to us. Now you're refusing the treatment. I said, so while you're refusing the treatment, me and your dad cannot watch you go downhill. I said, so if you're going to be living here, you've got to be abiding to your treatment. And she said, well, we're not going to. I said, well, in that case, you've got to leave. I said, because me and your dad cannot watch you go downhill. So she left, went to a friend's house for three weeks. We never phoned her. We never contacted her. Longest three weeks of mine and my husband's life ever. And then after three weeks, she texted me to say, oh, can I come home? And I thought, well, I'll play this call to visit or to leave. And she said to leave. So I texted her back saying, you're more than welcome home on the understanding that you take your physiotherapy and your treatment seriously. Otherwise, you may as well stop where you are. So she said, no, I will take it seriously. So she come back. She's rigorous with it now. But she knows that's what's extended her life as long as, as what it has. But toughest three weeks of my life ever. And I've spoken to another CF mum and she said, I don't know how you could have done it. I said, it was hard. But she dug her heels in. I said, so we had to dig ours in. What my worry was that if she was not to have the physio or the medication, that she would go so low that there was no coming back from. And that was what my biggest worry was. I mean, most patients can get away with not having an odd physiotherapy, but not on long term, they can't. And I thought once she's gone down, it's just going to be so hard to get her back up, if at all. So it took three weeks for her to come to her senses. It worked for us. Don't get me wrong, I'm of the opinion that it could have easily gone the other way. But when I need to call Lisa, my husband would be strong. And then when he was having his doubts, I was strong. But it was a tough three weeks, longest three weeks we've, we've ever had with her.
As much as rebelling against cystic fibrosis can be heartbreaking, I think it's a perfectly natural reaction to have. I distinctly remember once throwing my pet mask across the room when I was a kid, because I was just so done with it all. Kirsty has two children with CF, Jacoby and Willow. Her and her husband Matt have been able to bring them up to feel positive about their treatment routine. We actually try to refer to Kobe and Willow as our superheroes because they're both young. They both absolutely love anything to do with Marvel or DC, anything superhero related. They are all for it. So we say to them, you know, when they're doing their medicine or when they're doing their treatments and things like that, that it's keeping them strong. It's not stopping them from getting poorly. It's keeping them strong. And we try to enforce it that way and put it in the most positive way possible. So they don't see it as, oh, it's a chore, you know, it's a bad thing. We'll be all right without it. So that they know it's helping to keep them strong and it's going to make them even more strong. And we try and enforce it that way to try and make it a bit more positive. And I think for us, we've found it's definitely the best way to get them to be positive about it and not think, oh, got to do my nebulizer again. I mean, we do have days like that, obviously, but for the most part, they both seem to have taken on board that, right, yeah, let's keep your lungs big and strong and nice and healthy. Although Kirsty and Matt felt like their world had crumbled with Jacoby's diagnosis, there was a lot of hope because he was born with the right type of genes for a new medicine called Kaleidico. Because of the optimism Kaleidico presented, they decided to have their second child Willow, despite the risks of another CF diagnosis. It was heartbreaking and I just felt sad for her. But on the other side, that we'd spoke about in pregnancy as well, if Willow did have CF, Jacoby would have somebody that he could talk to as he's growing and Willow would have somebody that she could talk to as they were growing up and having Kobe there has helped Willow because Jacoby didn't have anybody to lead the way for him whereas with Willow because Jacoby's done most of the treatments and things sooner she's seen him do them and she's got somebody to look to it was evident as well in my older girls that don't have CF is that my 10-year-old instinctively looks to her bigger sister and she leads the way. She copies a lot of what she does and she did even more so when they were toddlers. And I think that's the way that Kobe and Willow have gone because they're so close in age as well. Willow does copy a lot of what he does. You know, he's a big brother. She's in awe of him anyway. If he draws a picture, she draws a picture. So that goes for the CF side of things as well. If he's doing his pet mask, and he's sitting really good doing his pet mask she wants to copy him and do her pet mask and I can remember she had some injections I think it was some sort of immunizations that she had to have and she really struggled with and the nurses said to us that it was quite painful for her to have them because the medicine as it went in it, it stung and she was really really sobbing and Jacoby came over to her and he was rubbing her hand and at this point I think Willow was probably at one, so Kobe would have been like four. And he just instinctively came over to her and he said, it's all right, Willow, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And he was just supporting her through it. It's beautiful, beautiful to see. I think he gives her a comfort that we can't because he's her brother. We're a mum and dad, we're these big grown-up people with big scary folk that tell them to be good. But Jacoby is her friend as well as her brother. It gets me choked up a lot of times. Sometimes, obviously, we're just getting on with things and we don't pick up on it as much. But then other days, I just sit back and think, I'm so lucky to have their help 
and that my family is this supportive of each other so sensitive to things and I'm very grateful as well that obviously my older daughters didn't ask for CF to come into their lives and I've been very aware of times when Jacoby and Willow have needed extra attention and extra care and where Madison and Lucy have been not pushed to the back but they haven't had as much attention as they would have had I'm very aware of that at times and I think they don't moan they don't complain they don't stand up and say hang on a minute what about me they just get on with it really and rather than complaining they try and support us and they try and help us it is scary and it is a huge thing but it will be okay you will find your feet with it and your kids will just be kids like everybody else it's just that their needs are slightly different to what other kids needs are let them focus on them being kids and that the CF is just a small part of them and it doesn't always feel so overwhelming and uncontrollable. You will get to a point where you think, okay, we can do this, we are doing this. It just becomes part of everyday life. It doesn't consume everything. It's not scary, it's just normal. It's just different. That's all it is, it's just different. I met more people with CF and I saw all the people who had families and kids and made friends who have awesome lives. You know, I had a person at one of my walks who was 60 years old with CF. Once I saw that, you know, there is an older Veronica someday, then that's when I was like, okay, cool. Like, I totally got this. And it got even easier for me. I think you've been very lucky. Yeah. I think other people with CF have had a lot worse than you. But I think part of that has been your strict treatment, but also the fact that you've been looked after so well by the Nottingham team as well. Can you for once, please, just pat yourselves on the back? You will be in your 80s and you still won't mention the fact that the reason I'm not ill is because of the two people sitting in front of me. Straight from the Lungs is produced by me, William Marler, and recorded at Birmingham City University. Thank you to Morgan, Amanda, Katie, Veronica, Martine, Kirsty, my sweet grandmother Jerry, and my wonderful mum and dad, Liz and Jerry. As always, thanks to Sam Lewis for his keen ear and ever helpful advice. The beautiful music you heard was by Ben Weatherill. Make sure to head over to our website, lungspodcast.co.uk, where you can find extra breaths from me and my guests, which is all the bits that didn't make it into the main episode, and illustrations by Vicky Neville. In the next episode, we'll be covering the various ways that CF can be treated and hearing from people who have pushed their bodies to the limit. Until then, thanks for listening. I hope you are proud of yourself. I didn't get this emotion when I made Pat. <laughs> I made a film about you. I didn't get. I didn't even get emotional about it. Are we going to turn it off now?